The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. And if you will turn in your copies of God's Word, guess where? Genesis. Genesis. We're back to this series on the foundations of faith from the book of Genesis. I actually had the opportunity to use some of our material this last week when I spoke at uh, Ligonier. Um, and um, uh, all of those, by the way, all of those talks, somebody asked me today, all of those talks, I think they're already up and available on YouTube. They're unbelievably efficient there. Uh, I mean, everything is amazing uh, how it's done. And um, and so I'm grateful for that. So you can probably benefit from all of that. But so here's where we've been. We have been looking at the foundations of the faith from God's word, building our theological foundation for uh, how we view life, a biblical world and life view, Christ centered, biblically framed, spirit uh, empowered so that that's where we have been sent. That's where we are. That's what we're doing in a culture of insanity, absurdity, lethality, immorality, all rooted in profitability. So that's where we are. So we're trying to work our way through that with the clarity of God's word in the midst of all of these jagged edges that are out there. So we've taken a look at the sanctity of creation, the sanctity of divine revelation from the book of Genesis, the sanctity of um, the sanctity of life. This, and uh, we're anticipating our study on the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of family. We have also taken a look at the sanctity of uh, the sanctity of the uh, the Lord's Day and anticipated that as well. But now we are in this area of the sanctity of gender, male and female. God made them, and so what I have attempted to do, if I can remind you of this, what I've attempted to do is to establish establish a biblical view of gender, a biblical view of gender, which is rooted in the book of Genesis. And we see that God made man male and female to image him. Now, both male and female bear his image, but the fullness of his image has been granted with clarity by the creation of male and female. So on the one hand, there is overlap as we both bear the image of God, male and female, but there is also distinction. So we examined what was, according to the creation, what was creation, masculinity and femininity. Then the fall brought 
toxic masculinity and femininity. Now that's a lot different from what you're hearing today. And what you're hearing today is that masculinity is toxic. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the fall brought a toxic effect upon both masculinity and femininity. So then we go to redemption. And now we've got redemption in which God saves us and breaks the power of sin as well as forgives the guilt of sin and therefore brings to us in redemption a biblical masculinity and a biblical femininity that we described in the previous sermons. And that is then downloaded into something that the, that we can rightly call Christian manhood and Christian womanhood. That uh, not the stereotypical um, projections of a culture in reaction or in uh, in its um, in its chaos or either attempting to get order from simply tradition, but taking a look what does god 's word say a Christian man is and does and a Christian woman and then now, how does that land in the spheres of life, the categories of life whereby we live so what does a Christian man and a Christian woman look like in singleness? What does a Christian man and a Christian woman look like in marriage? What does a Christian man and a Christian woman look like and act like in family, in parenting? What does a Christian man and a Christian woman look like in the body of Christ, the church, men of God, women of God? And then what about in the world? How do we as Christian men and women live in the world itself. Well, we're at that point of singleness, and we got started last week by making a couple of statements that I just simply want to briefly review for you, and that is this. All of these issues, singleness, marriage, family, church, the world, where do we go to get our direction? Well, we go to God's Word. We go to God's Word for a theological statement, a theological perspective. In other words, we want a theology of singleness to understand how a Christian man and a Christian woman who are living for the Lord by the grace of God to the glory of God should live. Then we need a theology of marriage. Then we need a theology of family, a theology of parenting, a theology of the church. We, we go to the Word of God in order to establish that. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, this is really and truly uh, absolutely uh, crucial in to, to understand and to embrace. Absolutely crucial that we need a theology of singleness, just like the rest of them. So how do I know? How do I know how God evaluates my performance as a man if I'm in singleness, a state of singleness? How do I know God's evaluation of my life? How do I know God's evaluation of my life as I live my life, my resources, my responsibilities, my relationships, whether I'm in singleness or marriage? How do I know that? Well, the way you know that is that you go to God's revealed will in His Word. A God-centered view of life in responsibilities, relationships, and the use of resources 
requires us to know how God views it, how God frames it, and how God evaluates. We live, and since I'm from Ligonier just a week, a week, uh, this last week, I'll use one of RC. You could always wait for RC to come up with some Latin term that you don't know uh, to put things together. And of course, one of his favorites was Coram Deo. Living life under the eye of God. That's theology. All of life is lived under the eye of God. That in all things God is glorified. In all things Christ is preeminent. By the power of the Spirit of God, all things are being, are to be brought as statements of worship in our lives before the Lord. Well, how can I know God's evaluation? How can I know God's prescription? How can I know God's precepts in these matters? How can I know this? Well, you know this from the Word of God. If you want to know the perspective of God, then you must go to the Word of God whereby God gives you that framework of life now and everlasting. You've got to go, in other words, the taproot of the Christian life is to be sunk deep in the soil of biblical truth. The taproot of the Christian life, everything, there is no non-theological arena of life. All of life is here for the glory of God, all of creation. As Kuiper said, the great Dutch theologian, there is not one square inch in all of creation that God does not say, this is mine. Now, how do I know to live as a steward of what is his? How do you steward singleness? How do you steward a marriage? How do you steward your relationships in the body of Christ. How do you steward those? You've got to put the taproot deep into the Word of God. That's the soil. The soil of God's Word is what nourishes the taproot of the life of every single believer before the Lord. It's there we get God's prescription. It's there we get God's description. It's there we find out what delights God, what God desires. It's there that we find out what God commands. That word, the word of God, is the only soil for the spirit-directed taproot of the Christian life to be filled up to overflowing so we bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit to the Lord. Now, whenever you go to the word of God in these matters, here is something I just want to kind of throw out for you as a pastor. Here's what I try to do. Whenever I come to an issue like this, I'm going to God's word. It's infallible, it's inerrant, it's sufficient, it's supreme. And as I go to God's word, I always look through three lenses from the word of God. Creation, fall, well really four lenses. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, 
looking at this subject, singleness, a theology of singleness starts with creation, then fall, then redemption, and then consummation. So if you don't mind, I'm going to start with creation, but I'm really not going to start with creation. I'm going to go ahead and take consummation. And that for the moment, until next week, I'm taking it off the table, just reminding you, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. So I'm going to lay down what all that means. Please give me time till next week. Where I want to focus on in the time we've got is to walk us through creation, fall, and redemption in addressing and, and developing a, in addressing singleness and developing a theology of singleness. Now you know the text. Your Bible probably falls open to it. Go with me to Genesis chapter one and verse 26. This is important for me to read it again in this context. Then God said, Let us, there's the accommodation of the Trinity, not the delineation of the Trinity, but the accommodation of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To bear God's image, both male and female are image bearers, but to bear God's image in the declaration of the Trinity is the necessity of God's created hand in bringing forth male and female, and then the benediction, next verse, and God blessed them. And then he gave them the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the earth, and subdue the earth. Now look, if you would, go to Genesis chapter 2 and slip down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, I'm, certainly there's a relational dynamic that's there. But, the, but, but I, I would suggest to you that that is not saying something is missing if Adam's alone. Relationally. If that's the case, I have no case to make for singles tonight. I have no case to make for them. It is my conviction that while we're made for the human dynamic of relationships, the fullness of relationship and the sufficiency of God is affirmed throughout all of life. What I believe the focus of that is that Adam alone could not subdue the earth. He's made of the dust of the ground appropriately. Why? Because he is to subdue this earth. He is to rule over this earth and have dominion over this earth. And he is to fill this earth. And as he names all of the animals, there's not a suitable helper. Therefore, not from the dust of the ground, but from his side is going to come the helper completer to get what is good done, the creation mandate. So he says, it's not good for the man that should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. Well, hold it. Stop right there. I just, sorry. This one's a freebie. I'm going to throw this one in. So much for Darwinian evolution. I thought we had to have someone who would evolve the mental capacities. I mean, this is pretty sophisticated right here, folks. Right? First man, look what he's doing. He is making, he is not only engaged in botany, he is not only subduing the earth, he is naming the animals, and as he, that means he's not only showing authority over them, he's defining them. And as he defines them, none fit him. None fit alongside of him to get the mandate done. It is impossible. Note the sophistication of Adam. Mentally, as well as the honesty of Adam functionally before the Lord. And so he then says to him, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had got take, had the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha, reflection of, out of man and brought to Ish, man. She is different yet equal and together they bear the image of God. And together, both will be necessary to accomplish the creation mandate. Then God provides a blessing for this heterosexual couple, this monogamous conjugal, um, this uh, covenantal relationship and its marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, And they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And whenever I read this, I have to remind myself of something we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks. And that is, marriage is not only for the blessing to accomplish the creation mandate. Marriage becomes the prophetic picture of the redemptive mandate. I am speaking with reference to Christ and his bride, the church. The man who left his father, Jesus, son of God, son of man, to cleave to his wife and purchase her at the cross. And from his side, the blood flowed to redeem his bride, who becomes joint heirs with him, union with Christ. And nothing will bring a divorce in that marriage. Nothing can. For nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus, 
the sexuality and intimacy of the one flesh relationship is shameless in the context of this marriage. Folks, I want to just kind of lay some things out for you in the moments we have left, and uh, then we'll finish it up next week um, and planned on these two sermons with it. Uh, let me, but I'm, I've always, out of integrity as well as my own heart desire, have to acknowledge one of my mentors when I first began my ministry uh, in the late 70s as a student pastor. His name was Al Martin. And in 1974, Al had done a series on singleness that I was able to get my hands upon the now museum artifact called a cassette tape. And I got my hands on those things and began to listen to them and then just went off. And actually what I'm sharing with you, I first developed as a 25-year-old student pastor uh, just in seminary. Uh, and I've only tried to refine it ever since. And I'm grateful to the work that he did that laid it out for me. And I'm grateful to him for all of his leadership and faithfulness throughout his life and ministry. So having having affirmed that, I want you now to jump in with me of where I've come to over these decades about a theology of singleness and uh, and only attempted to refine it from the very beginning. Let's start with creation. We have just read the creation account. We've got the general account of the sixth day of creation in the making of man as God's image bearer to be the vice regent over all of his creation, to fill it, to subdue it, and to rule over it, male and female, as his image bearer in the context. And then we've got in chapter 2, as it were, we've got the biology lab microscope. Now this, I don't know, you don't need it today, but we used to have a microscope and one of the first things in the 10th grade in 10th grade biology was to learn how to use the three-pronged microscope, 10 power, 20 power, and 30 power. And uh, so here is, you go from the 10 power in the Genesis 1 and now he brings the focus upon the sixth day in Genesis chapter 2 and in it we begin to see the inner workings of the creation of man, male and female, in the context of the creation mandate being carried out. And so in creation, what is it that we begin to see? Well, the first thing that we see from creation is there is no perpetual singleness in creation. There is no perpetual singleness in creation. It's absent. There is absent any perpetual long-term singleness, continued singleness. It's, it's absent. But, number two, we do see a temporary singleness. Temporarily, Adam is single. He's by himself. And he is not good for him to be alone under the, under the, the mandates that God has given to him. So there is a temporary singleness with Adam, and I don't know to what degree there was a temporary singleness with Eve. Notice, Eve was made from Adam and then brought to Adam. From Adam, then brought 
to Adam. So there is some time from the, I don't know how much time. It's certainly temporary. It's, I believe, within the space of one day. But sometime within that time, uh, Adam is alone and Eve is alone as they are dwelling in the garden and, uh, and as she comes into existence. So we've got the temporary preparatory, not perpetual, but the temporary preparatory singleness of Adam and the temporary preparatory singleness of Eve. That brings me to a third observation. I believe it is absolutely reasonable to assume without sin and without the fall, perpetual singleness would not be present. It would be absent. I think that's as, now I am not going to make that a hard and fast statement. I'm tempted to, but I am not going to because I don't know what God could have done. Um, and as, uh, if the holiness of Adam and Eve had continued and then they have children where we would once again have temporary singleness as they would have children, there would be temporary singleness. But whether, how, to what degree uh, that would extend and would there ever be a perpetual singleness in a sinless creation, I can't say. I don't have enough information, but I do have enough information that in the context of creation, it would be reasonable to assume that perpetual singleness would be absent and some form of temporary singleness would always be present. There would be the absence of perpetual singleness and just like Adam and Eve, there would be some present, there would be some temporary, preparatory, preliminary singleness within the context of, of, of life. Uh, let me now make one final observation. And that's this. The desire for union, intimacy, interdependency, the blessings of the covenant of marriage, is not sinful. It is not sinful. Now, can it become sinful if it is, if it becomes um, an idol? Yes. But the desire is not sinful. If God says it's not good for the man to be alone, then, and we find Adam's response, which is basically faithfulness, I mean, I've often thought that what he actually said, if, uh, I, of course I know it was ish and isha and all of the Hebrew word that's used there. Uh, but if Adam was speaking southern English, I think what he probably said when God brought her to him, and, whoa man, that might have been what he said. <laughs> no dating for me, this is it. <laughs> What a woman that is. And uh, so I, that might have been, uh, and she would have said something like, well, there's demand right there. That might have taken place. So th- there was temporary, but it is not sinful to long for it, to desire the intimacy, the interdependency within the covenant of marriage. It is not a statement that God is not enough. It is a statement that God has made us with that desire. Therefore, it is not sinful unless it is elevated as a God in our life. So, that's creation, but that's not where we end. We also have the fall into sin. And with the fall into sin comes the curse of sin. 
And that brings us to a doctrine that we teach with thoughtfulness and carefulness, the doctrine of total depravity. Not a doctrine of absolute depravity. We are not as sinful as we could be. Any, here, let me, I, I don't know who to give credit to this. I would, I'm giving credit to somebody I can't remember. When I find out who they were, it's in my notes somewhere. I'll, I'll bring it to you. But anything that you and I experience in the span of our life short of hell is mixed with God's grace. We have had the work of common grace in our life if we're not in hell right now. We have experienced God's grace and his mercy. So, we... But what we mean by total depravity is that the curse of sin has affected us um, intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, relationally. It has penetrated and rendered us incapable of pleasing God without him. Without him, we can do nothing to his glory. We either need the work of common grace that restrains our sin, and we need the work of transforming grace that transforms a sinner, so that instead of falling short of God's glory, we can give God glory. Now, that does not mean we are as evil as we could be. No, that's absolute depravity. God has restrained us from being as evil as we could be. So while it would be careless, it would be careless to, for me to assert as an axiom that perpetual sinless, I mean, I'm sorry, let me say this again. While it would be careless for me to assert as an axiom that perpetual singlet, singleness, that is the extended singleness, even lifetime of singleness, would not have been found if we had not fallen into sin. I do believe, I do believe it is appropriate that I could assert that the direct causes of extended perpetual singleness are found only because of the presence of sin. Sin has introduced this. Now, here's what I did not say. Do not leave here and say, Harry said everybody that's in single is punishment for their sin. No, that is not what I said. Please make that abundantly clear. What I said was singleness perpetual in this world is directly related to the consequences of the fall. That's what I said. Let me give you seven observations on that. I'll just jot them down for you. Here's the first one. Ladies, I have some bad news. <laughs> There's not enough of us to go around. I mean, we are, you're just kind of stuck with the five to seven percent deficit of potential candidates, uh, in terms of just live bodies, live male bodies. We're kind of stuck with a five to seven percent. Why? Because of wars, sickness, wars and sickness, um, we have a deficit of men. 
Now, here's the good news. The rise of, of uh, feminine, feminism and egalitarianism has closed, these, the, has, has closed the mortality gap. You're dying a lot quicker now uh, that, you, uh, that you want to be us. And so now that you want to be us, you're going to die quicker. That's one of the, uh, one of the consequences. But up until now, um, men die quicker. Why? Wars, sicknesses, um, what it, it, when you make some effort at leading and providing and protecting as men are called to do, there are going to be, is going to be greater mortality. Uh, you get heart attacks quicker, you have breakdowns quicker, your body runs down quicker, all of those things. So sin's consequence that brings wars. Why do we have violence and war? Because of sin. What is the result? Men get killed at a much higher rate than women. Men die quicker than women because of the presence of sin in this world. Secondly, because of sinful selfishness. Some people do not marry simply out of, um, out of sinful, out of sinful selfishness. They don't want to be responsible for anyone. Oh, they'll be more than happy if you'll open up the motel room to come in for the hookup culture. They'll be more than happy to do that. They'll be more than happy for you to bear yourself in shame so that they can engage in shame and make another woman's body a playground. And increasingly, women also, out of selfishness, self-centered living, have no time for a relationship that costs, such as marriage, or for the result of children to parent and to prioritize in life. The curse of sin brings self-centeredness and selfishness and self-exaltation and self-absorption. It is amazing what this has done to the quote-unquote marriage rate so that now in our country, those without, um, without a covenant relationship with a spouse now are far into the majority within the culture, within the country. Number three is sinful social and relational habits. There's sometimes women will look at a man and say, there's no way I can trust that man to love me and lead me. I see how he deals with other people. Or there's no way I can trust that woman to be faithful to me as long as we both shall live. Sinful social habits began to be, began to undermine selfish, unbelief, dominating behavior in men, um, uh, a lack of, a lack of purity and chastity in men and women, and the under, and the, just the underbelly of immorality and the sinful social habits that come from it. Number four, sinful fears. And I can understand why. 
as a pastor, I've just come to realize I very seldom sit down with people in ministry, pastoral ministry and discipleship, that they haven't come from some varying degrees of horror stories in family life. Broken homes. Now, God's grace is sufficient. Please remember that. But I'm just laying out for you a lot of people are scared to get married by looking at the parent, at the family they were raised in and the marriage from where, where they were born. I honestly, I got married when I was 20. I found Cindy by God's providence. I dated her for three months. I thought you weren't going to be in here tonight, by the way. I, um, I dated her for three months. And then we got, and then I, I asked her to marry me and somehow she said yes. And then we were engaged for three months. That was six months. People asked me, that was quick, wasn't it? Not quick enough for me. I still left a lot of room for her to change her mind. That would have been devastating. Can I tell you one of the things that drew me? My life was completely, um, undone. It was empty. It was ungodly. It was profane, it was violent, and it had numerous addictions. I saw something in her, and that brought me to Christ. I saw something in my parents. I saw something in my grandparents. And I grew up in a family, and I wanted to be like my dad and my mom. And I wanted a marriage. Now, I was close to idolatry, thinking marriage would be the answer. My mother was pretty convinced if she couldn't get me to Jesus, to get me to the altar would be the next thing. But the reality is, marriage was appealing because of the stability I saw. Today, children see not stability, but violence and chaos and broken hearts and broken relationships. So sinful fears mitigate against marriage and extend singleness in our world. The average age in the 1960s where people were married was between 20 and 21. Today, it is when they do get married, which is by no means the majority anymore, it is in, it is between 32 and 34. Now, let me tell you something else that's happening is that puberty is going down. It used to be puberty was at 14. Now it's as early as 11 in some societies. 11 to 34 with hormones and testosterone raging. What do you think is happening? Even more sins. That brings me to number five. Number fifth thing is sinful Sinful lifestyles, sinful lifestyles throughout adolescence, which no longer is at age 18. Adolescence now is extended all the way to age 26, and recent paper said it ought to move to age 28. And in the midst of that is developing not the habits of life, that bring forth ethical clarity, but the habits of life that bring forth immoral chaos and confusion. 
And that mitigates against marriage. Why? Because some of those behaviors, one of the means of grace to bring sanctity to it is marriage. It is not... It is, um, First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at the sanctity of sexuality later, but let me just go ahead and anticipate it in First Corinthians chapter 7. It is not good for a man to sensually touch a woman. But because of immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Here is, and then he goes on to say, the body of the wife does not belong to her but to her husband. The body of the husband does not belong to him but to his wife. Do not defraud one another except by agreement for a time of prayer and fasting. That the sexual relationship that initiates a marriage is one that recreates marriage and it is one that governs the passions as one is discipled in their sexuality to give pleasure instead of rip pleasure away from someone but now we now have another culture where the sexual relationship has replaced the goodnight kiss and in its place is simply an act of lust and then after the hookup One just simply leaves and no one can look at each other. For there is no shameless relationship in such a sinful act before God. Let me give you another one. uh, um, Another one and that would be the the sinful... um, um, sinful behaviors, I'm sorry, I just gave you these, the sinful behaviors of promiscuity, the sinful behaviors of sexual perversion, and the sinful behaviors of premarital sexuality and engagement. Instead of marriage being a means of grace for those issues, now marriage is the casualty as those sexual relationships of promiscuity, sexual relationships of perversion, same-sex relationships, and and premarital sexuality becomes the normative of the age. You know, it's really interesting, isn't it? You could have gone to get a 15, 20 years ago, you would have filled out a... uh, you would have filled out. It's really interesting how our culture of insanity has moved. You would have filled out a profile and the interview for a job. Are you married? Yes. Uh, how is your relationship with your wife? It's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Uh, and we are absolutely committed to sexual fidelity because we believe that sexuality and sexual relationships belong only in a marriage. Twenty years ago, you would have got a check and a star. Today, they would write, bigot. Bigot. And it's in that culture that our children are being raised. Please forgive me for this, but I've just got to say it. Our children are raised there with curriculums in the academy that are designed 
that are designed to make what is disobedient to God in terms of relationships in general and sexuality in particular, whether those of promiscuity, premarital, or perversions, they are the abnormal is declared normal. And through the media and social media and through technology and through classrooms and curriculum, it's hours and hours and hours in which our children are hammered with this by people who have unbelievable skills of communication and instruments of communication. And a preacher gets maybe a shot at 40 minutes a week. That's it. Maybe a Sunday school class of 30 minutes. It is such behavior that uh, squanders the and extends, uh, sinfully extends um, sin, uh, singleness in this world. Let me give you another one. And that is the sinful, the results of the curse of sin in physical consequences. The Bible calls this, this is not many, but it's true. Uh, Jesus identifies eunuchs from the mother's womb. In other words, because of the curse of sin, there are developments in the womb that render someone incapable uh, of uh, emotionally or physically or sexually of entering into a marital relationship. Uh, number seven, uh, number, yeah, I think this is number seven, um, uh, is sinful profiles of a partner, uh, sinful profiles for a marriage mate in the covenant of marriage. Sinful profiles, what are we looking for? What are we asking God to bring into our life? Who is it that we are praying for? Sinful profiles of what we are actually looking for. It's kind of like men are focused upon the externals. It's like, you know, Jesus, I think uh, I'm going to pray about marriage. And uh, um, could you bring a runway beauty into my life? And by the way, it'd be great if she has a quiet time every morning. I have a guy, I was talking with this one guy for a while, and finally I just, in frustration, said, Listen, have you looked in the mirror recently? You're not a bargain, my friend. And then women begin to look for credentials. Instead of, Is this a man who has a heart for the Lord and a heart for me and will lay down his life to to love me and will grab the towel, the servant's towel, to lead me. What are the profiles that we are praying for and looking for? Sinful, another one is sinful preparation. So how many times have I done singles conferences and people will say to me, Pastor, how do I know when I find Mr. Right? Or how do I know when I find Mrs. Right? My answer is wrong question. Call upon the Lord. God, what do you need to do in my life to make me Mr. Right or Mrs. Right for someone else? There is also a sinful, not only the sinful preoccupation with the external, but a, sim, but a sinful dismissal of the internal. 
so that instead of focusing on the on um, instead of focusing on our walk with the Lord in terms of uh, sexual uh, purity and sort of relational intimacy in terms of um, of intellectual and relational discourse instead of working on those things we work on the externals my goodness how much money are we going to spend on training coaches i'm not opposed to them i know some of you make money doing it i'm not opposed to it i need one can you give me somebody that can train somebody that is as bad off as i am I understand that, but we give all of our resources to cosmetics, to the physical. What do we do with the internal, the spiritual, our walk with the Lord? Yes, I am not opposed to bodily discipline, but what about godliness, which is of greater profit? Because of sin in this world, we, we even as believers sometimes will, we will, um, put our emphasis in the wrong areas and not in the areas that we need to. Can I need to say something here? My goodness, what happened? We need, I need to say something here and then I'll close in prayer because I'm out of time. Um, but uh, it was, we moved to number three, redemption. Listen to me. I did not put those things out there because there is no answer. There is an answer to every single one of them. It's the saving power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want that to make clear. Listen, if he can redeem me and grant me a marriage that has been unbelievable by God's grace uh, for 53 years in which I am a debtor to him and my wife and now to my children, if he can do that in my life, it will be done in your life. Just go to him today. Now, well, what about redemption? Uh, may I just give you these four things and we'll come back here. I just, I want you to, I just at least need to get this to you. If you'll just think through uh, this. Um, um, here's what I want you, here, here's what I want to say to you in terms of redemption. Christ as a redeemer is not shortened. By your singleness. He is actually working through it. Secondly. Christ uses singleness. Like everything else. He sovereignly allows. To disciple us. We're going to build on all of this next week. Thirdly. Christ. Is altering us. In the midst. Of our singleness. Fourthly, we are driven closer to Christ as our only response. Let me just finish by sharing these two biblical texts with you. It's not sin to want the intimacy and interdependency of a marriage if you're single, unless you elevate it to idolatry. But what do you do with it so that it doesn't elevate to idolatry? I have no other passage to tell you than this one. Where the Lord calls us to be content in whatever circumstances we are. 
We don't move forward in the Christian life out of coveting, but out of contentment. As Jeremiah Burroughs says, that rare jewel of Christian contentment. How do I get there, Pastor? Well, here's the first thing. I'll give you Philippians 4. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. Do we believe that applies to everything in life? Do you believe that? Hello? I'm, I'm not saying that unfeelingly. I understand the deep desires for intimacy and interdependency. I'm not saying it unfeelingly. But I am saying it confidently. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will stand guard over your heart through Christ Jesus. He personally will stand sentry over your heart. And then number three. Can't believe in Sunday morning, Sunday night, I'm, I'm quoting the same verse, but here I'm back. Pastor... Out of my contentment, what do I do? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. These things will be added in the timing and manner he wants to put them in your life. So walk by faith, calling out in prayer, saying no to anxiety. Concerns are valid. Bring them to Jesus. Anxieties and fears banish through the contentment that he brings with you and to you. I don't mean this flippantly. We'll all be in some sense. I'm going to break this next week. In some sense, we all are going to have some extended singleness in heaven. There will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Now what does that mean? Tune in next week. So here today, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Bring your concerns to him in prayer. Here's my last exhortation. Brothers and sisters whom God has allowed you to know here in this day, in this time, intimacy and interdependency. I am all for a singles pastor to be right there available in those challenges and those moments of life. And I thank God for it. But these brothers and sisters in the perpetuation of singleness are in the family. You love them. You bring them into your home and into your life. When that holiday comes, invite them. In that Sunday night after evening church, let's go out together. You find ways to build relationship. Stephen, all of our pastors of our congregational communities, find ways to, I'm fine for communities to be focused around a season of life. But find ways to come into each other's life and build your relationships together so that we might know to some level the intimacies and interdependence of fellowship in the family of God together. You can't program this. You've got to deliver it. And you deliver it 
out of love to Christ and love to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments to be together. Thank you so much for the patience of my brothers and sisters uh, uh, to let me get to at least some stopping point tonight. And I pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters who are in an extended time of singleness. Not a, doesn't, uh, it's gone beyond what seemingly is the temporary or the preparatory as Adam and Eve uh, were. It seems to be beyond that or as children are who are raised and now launched into the world. And, but Father, as they get a grasp of what creation, fall, and redemption, and the chaos within this world, uh, not only with the not only with the absence of men, or the lack of women who are seeking, or um, or the um, or the lack of those who would want to be uh, a godly husband or wife, uh, Father, bring the gospel. Change all of this in our lives, even as you use it right now to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.